Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We've got our group back for a second week in a row here. And last week we talked about preaching, preachers that have been really influential for us, people we like listening to, uh, people that uh, we've learned a lot from and imitated in, in certain ways what they do. And This week I want to turn the focus a little bit and talk about learning to preach and teach. So whether that is training young guys to preach, of which some of us would be in that category, uh, and at the same time, how you've learned to preach and teach, your method, uh, the things that you feel like you do uh, in, in a special way, the things that you've learned from other people. Um, so let me kick it off this way. I think everybody does sermon prep a little bit different, uh, but everybody is aiming towards a pretty similar goal. If you guys are doing a sermon or a lesson, walk us through your typical week of prep. Maybe, Lance, why don't you kick us off with that? How, how does the sermon go from infancy to delivery over the course of a week or a day or however long you're going to spend on it? What's your, what's your routine like? Well, one thing I remember is right now it's college football season, so i got to have that baby done before Saturday. <laughs> That's right. Uh, because there <laughs> yeah. are priorities in life. Uh-huh. And, you know, at Dallas Seminary, they taught us a process that I, I, I don't use strictly, but it's very helpful, and that is forming an exegetical outline where you're, you're just asking yourself, what is this passage talking about back then? A theological outline, what is the timeless principle? And an, a homiletical outline. Let's put this in terms of today. I, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, and before I say that, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is find one central point that the whole sermon is going to make. You may have four outline points, but you don't have four points. That's the mistake we get into. You really have one point, and those four points help people understand that. Mm-hmm. I was Marty was preaching on patience last week, and I, I wrote him a letter. I said, man, that was really good because I've, all week long I've been thinking about patience. But as he was preaching about that, I thought, what story in Scripture is would, what kind of stories in Scripture would be helpful? And the one I went to personally was uh, David and Nabal, where you remember Nabal says, David says, can our guys stay with your guys? We helped you back when. And Nabal, he, he kind of, I can't remember exactly how he does it, but he said, not no, but heck no. Mm-hmm. And David gets mad at that point and says, I'm going to go, and we're just going to take all these guys out. Right. And then Abigail intercedes and the thing that stuck out to me about that story is I was like, when I am at my most impatient moments, I am David in that story. And sometimes Jenny is my Abigail. And she's a picture of, no, wait a second. you know. And, and so I thought you could frame, you could do a sermon just on patience. And there's probably mm-hmm. 13 other stories. But in doing that, you've got to tell the story first. You've got to say, Here, let's look at what's happening in this story. Let's look at the main characters. You got Nabal, you got David, you got Abigail, and let's look at each one of them and how they're approaching this situation. And now let's go to today. And in my mind, I'm already thinking sometimes I'm David, sometimes I'm Nabal. Mm-hmm. Not very often I'm Abigail. But even then, what I want to do in that sense, too, is to always bring it back to the gospel, too, to say, you know, what is this story also illustrating about who I am in Christ? And it is that God should have just come and taken me out. Mm-hmm. But he was patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, I he gave me time. And, you know, David thanks Abigail. I can't remember if he does it literally, but at the end of the story, you can see that David is thanking Abigail for teaching him to restrain himself. Mm-hmm. And I even see the restraint of God. So, So that might be an example of where your main point is we need to be patient, but see, that's not, for me, it's like, I need more than just, I know I need to be, mm-hmm. I need to see how this plays out. And so that might be an example of how that admonition plays out. But again, you go to the story, mm-hmm. you go to the timeless principle, then you go to, how does this apply to me when I'm behind the wheel and the guy in the light in front of me is texting and he won't go? How mm-hmm. long do I honk? If right. I'm a believer, that was a joke, but you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I've found even after hearing a sermon on patience last week, I've seen areas of my life where I'm impatient. For me, a story in scripture helps cement that mm-hmm. to say, I want to be Abigail and I want to be, I want to be in the spirit of Christ in this story. But mm-hmm. you know, in the end it's Haddon Robinson, bullet, not buckshot. Yeah. Uh, don't, 
what I've got to be careful of is have I unloaded a lot of information in 30, 45 minutes? Or have I helped people to see the goodness of God and how he wants me to conform to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of this it revolves around what what is the definition of preaching and teaching? What are you actually trying to do as you preach and teach? And I, there's a lot of different definitions for expository preaching. I think the easiest one, is, and, and several people share this, but I think Herschel York does a good job of defining this as it is exposition and it is application. So if you if you don't have exposition, you don't have a sermon. Um, if you just go up there and talk, you have a lecture or you have a motivational speech, but you don't really have a sermon. You're not proclaiming the Word of God. And if you go up there and exposit and, and talk about what this text meant 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago to its original hearers, but you don't bridge that gap at all to your modern audience and show them how they should live in light of what God has spoken then you really don't have a sermon either. You don't have any proclamation there. You just have a summary statement. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like almost every error in preaching comes from missing the mark on one of those. Mm-hmm. So, for example, mm-hmm. the danger um, that you're alluding to when you preach narrative is turning it into Aesop's fables. Mm-hmm. And this is what you see a lot in preaching, uh, especially in certain styles of preaching, but also among young preachers is you get into a narrative text and the point of the sermon is basically just to draw moral out. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference between what you're talking about and just having a moral of the story. Because it's like we could preach Homer's Odyssey if we wanted right. under that model. What is it that makes the Bible or a message like the one you're talking about, if you're going to take the story of David and you're going to do the things that you mentioned and bring the audience into um, an experience of God's Word, what are the ways you avoid just just having morals at the end of narrative passages. There's a strong strain, I think, right now, one of the aberrations in Christianity, and this is just my opinion, is there's a strong moralistic strain. Yeah, is, like Goliath has... I might as well be teaching as, as a historian. About. Yeah, I mean, as a historian, you take stories out of the Bible and they end up having a moral. I might as well be teaching you about Buddha, or might as well be teaching you about Napoleon. I can draw great life lessons from those things, but there's nothing uniquely Christian about it. Right. And I realize that's, you know, I mean, that's going to be offensive to some people, but there are some preachers you listen to, they're effectively giving you a moral. They just happen to be using the Bible to do it. So I think what you're saying is at the end, there has to be something here that's uniquely Christian, and that's tying the gospel into it. Yeah, I think, and let's going back to the David Nabal story, I think what you could do with that story, too, is to say David's anger was justified, Mm -hmm. but his sudden venting of that, there's part of it that is like God, and there's part of David that's not like God. Mm -hmm. And and where you can bring that around to the end is maybe 2 Peter 3, God is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish right on the heels of saying he's going to come and burn this place up someday. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the Lance Ward paraphrase. Yeah. But in that, in that message, what the reminder is at the end, if I use that story, is you must be patient because your Heavenly Father was patient for you, and aren't you glad he was? And maybe you being patient in this next situation is the allowance for mm-hmm. someone else to see the grace of God. Yeah. And you bring, in that sense, you're bringing the gospel into it as a motivator, Right. And as a as a background. And you're also, like you're saying, Cole, you're not just saying this is a good moral story from the Old Testament, but there's a bigger picture going on here of what maybe the Lord is trying to teach us and including. There's a lot of David's life we know nothing about, but he yeah. there are certain stories we have in there that are important. And in that sense, that's where I would say that, Terry, that I don't want people just to go away admiring Abigail, but mm-hmm. also saying to themselves, where am I more like David and Nabal? And where is Abigail more like the Lord? Mm-hmm. And how can I be conformed to the image of Christ, mm-hmm. who is patient and long-suffering, and yet not lenient? Uh, yeah. One, one thing I've found is that you know, kind of a young, inexperienced teacher that's been helpful for me is just from a method standpoint, is one of the tools I've made sure to always add into my kind of repertoire whenever I'm doing prep is that ESV gospel commentary mm-hmm. uh, because it always helps me, even if you're in the middle of a text where you may not see Jesus at the very beginning of whenever you're reading and, and trying to go through it, that commentary always helps you come back to make sure you are always pointing back to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so just putting that in my research patterns 
um, they kind of it, it, it seems to help me make sure that when I'm prepping the lesson, I've always got that in my mind. How do I how do I tie this back to the gospel? Because it you know you really try to make sure almost every lesson you mm-hmm. tie back to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Is so, that the gospel transfer? Uh, gospel transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah. those yeah. listening, they just re-released yeah. that. That is a great little resource yeah. because its purpose is to tie everything right back to the gospel idea. Yeah. So I, I think sometimes it's even the difference, not just in your method. I mean, there may be a moral to the story, but mm-hmm. the way that you go about preaching that is different than inspiring people now to be more patient. But, but actually what you want people to do is to imitate Christ. Um, you know, there's a reason that patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and not just something that you get a gold star for in your human nature that you either have or you don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the way you go about empowering people, drawing people to Christ, to the Holy Spirit in their life, changes the way you preach narratives. On the flip side of that, one of the things that that I I, I wouldn't say I dislike this as much as, as moralistic preaching, because I think overall it's better. But a lot of what you see with the redemptive historical guys, so this would be the camp of people who are like Keller and a lot of the great Presbyterian preachers fall into this category. There are some really good ones, but when you hear redemptive historical preaching that's not very good, it, it's the principle of, from every text, make a beeline to the cross, which is a good principle. But sometimes what you run into when you hear that kind of preaching is you actually don't get any historical context whatsoever. You almost get like a reader response version of the story and then immediately a gospel presentation afterwards. So in the story of of David and Abigail, it's like you read the story and then you say, David wasn't patient. You know who was patient? Jesus. You should believe in him. Um, He's the true and better David. And then you give a gospel presentation at the Mm -hmm. end. He fulfills what David fell short in doing. I think the reason that I dislike that kind of preaching is it limits what you can preach about. So if you if you preach that way, and and this is not every redemptive historical guy, obviously, but if you have an abbreviated view of that, the only thing you can do is call people to recommit at the end of your sermon. Mm-hmm. The only thing you can do is give a gospel presentation at the end. And I think it's a detriment when we only have preaching in our churches that present the gospel as the final application. I think you should, gospel mm-hmm. in every sermon is great, but if that's your final application every time, what options does that leave a mature Christian to do if they're hearing a steady diet of your preaching? Right. That's Rededicate a, every week? You no, know, saying about that, Cole, it's a lot of times I find the task of the preacher and teacher is to evangelize the lost who may be there mm-hmm. and remind the saved. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a difference in that's kind of where we've got to watch out that if, you know, it's, what is it, Peter, that says those who have stopped doing these things have forgotten they've been forgiven for their past sins. Right. Second Peter 1 something. And that's what we often do. We were forgetful. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I grew up in Southern Baptist Church where it was like the gospel is presented as if to the lost every Sunday. Right. Where it's like, it, it, it's, but it's a hard balance to strike is we want to present the gospel. But for the majority of the people there, it's often as just don't forget here's what God did for you. Mm-hmm. And like in that story of Abigail, Abigail is probably the best picture. If we're going to tie her into the story of Jesus, she's honest about the situation. She says, yeah, my husband is a fool, but she also says, don't do this. Mm-hmm. And it's a good reflection of a just God. You know, and you can take that, but you're right. I don't, you, well, I think one of the things we misunderstand about gospel centered preaching is that it's not that you're necessarily trying to always save the lost. You're also seeking to remind the saved. Mm-hmm. But you're right. You don't want to stretch things too far yeah. to where well, it becomes really tie. If you, if you do that, I think the, things, the thing that I would want to say about this might be an unpopular opinion is there's two reasons I think people do that. And reminding the saved is great. And, and you remember when Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, you get this, on first glance, kind of bizarre passage where Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. as if Timothy's going to forget. Yeah. And he's a pastor. Mm-hmm. And Paul's written this letter. He's like, hey, by the way, remember Jesus Christ. And the more you get into ministry, the more that passage makes sense. Mm-hmm. Not because you're on the verge of giving up your faith, but because it's easy to get busy with other stuff. And then all of a sudden, or, or come up with an entire sermon outline where it's like, would this be different if you weren't a Christian? You're like, well, actually, mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. I think that's helpful. 
But for young preachers, a gospel presentation at the end to treat everybody in the audience like they're unsaved, so to, to evangelistic preaching, when you know that the room is 99% Christians, which is where I think this happens a lot, is lazy preaching in my opinion. It's a cop-out um, because it's harder to preach about the Christian life than it is to say, hey guys, remember the gospel, shouldn't you be thankful, try harder to be moral. That's what that ends up being sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's difficult to preach about the Christian life and, and allowing the gospel to be a reminder and a motivator instead of a, a shame, moralistic mechanism at the end of your sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you guys may disagree with that. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. Uh, here's the question that's coming to my mind, maybe changing the direction a tad. Given that that's true, I'd be curious to know, Cole, how do you go from Monday to Sunday? What's your process in developing a lesson or a sermon? And I realize they're a little bit different. Yeah, to me, the, the big difference between teaching and preaching is not your intent. It, it has a ton to do with your delivery and your audience. So mm-hmm. I think all teaching and preaching should start the same way. You're trying to understand the original intention of the text. So you're reading it. You're paying attention to things like historical background I think where I'm naturally drawn is the canonical and literary framework of the text itself. So a question I always ask and always challenge young guys to ask is, okay, you've given me a great exposition of this text. If it were plucked out on a page by itself, because unfortunately that's all we read sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like you've been given this text to preach, so you just read that text and you treat it like it's its own self-subsisting universe. And I was like to ask the question, but why is that paragraph after the one before it? Mm-hmm. And why is it before the one after it? And this is easy to do in Paul's letters, but it's just as important in narratives. Mm-hmm. So people tell narratives, not just as a collection of fun stories, but to make overarching points or to show you movements or even in the Psalms, there's, there's reasons why certain verses come after others as far as the emotional architecture of the passage. Mm-hmm. Not just, that was a cool thing to say, and that was a cool thing to say, and that was a cool thing to say, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the fact that the framework and the skeleton and the, and the way the text works together matters. And so I think when you're doing exposition, that should be your first step. Figure out what this says and why it is where it is in this book or in this passage um, that you're reading. And whether you're doing that through, like like I said, can, a canonical framework, or uh, you're doing that through historical background, like why would mm-hmm. Paul anticipate this question in this culture? I think that's the most important first step. Can I interject an example of that where I did it and then continue? But the story of David and Goliath, I teach that differently than I used to, because as I'm reading the context of before and after that story, my question is, why is this story placed here? Mm-hmm. And when you see David's passion, the thing that stands out to me most in that story now is not that he beats Goliath, but his passion. While Saul is retreating, David is advancing. And he said, he can't talk that way about our God. Mm. So what I think the author's intent is in placing it there, and I may be wrong, is that he wants to show us why Saul is disqualified and why David is qualified. Yeah, He wants to show us what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart. And so I really tend now to focus on, look at what David says. You have come up against the Lord of hosts, and I may be a little squirrely guy, but I will not stand for this. And so what, he, what he's saying is, this is the guy that's fit to be king, not the guy that looks the part, but the guy who inside. And mm-hmm. so then you get to the application of that sermon is, what's your passion about? Where are your affections? Mm-hmm. You want to be a person after God's own heart. It doesn't mean you're going to slay giants necessarily, but it does mean that you are not going to allow anything to become bigger than your God. Right. And uh, so um, to interject, that's mm-hmm. an example of what I see you saying is, I got to take into account not just that story, but what comes before and after. Because I think it's the chapter before where Saul is, where God says he's disqualified or can't remember. There's something that goes on in the chapter or two before. Yeah. And then, so why is this David? Why does God choose this David guy? He's yeah. a squirrely guy. Because God looks on the heart. And it does, And we often see that as he's got a good heart. He doesn't just have a good heart, per se. He's got a heart that says, I will not let anything stand in the way of the greatness of my God. Yeah. Well, and that'll preach, you know. So I ha- I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Like, 
Well, that's that's kind of if I think about some of the mistakes I've made in the last few years, just getting started teaching, you know, is I feel like it was very tempting for me, especially whenever you get asked to do kind of a one-off lesson, right? right. And so you're you're going to be the substitute teacher today in the midst of a 12-week sermon series yeah. that the, the, the primary teacher's done all this work on. I need you to come in here and just teach this portion. Right. Well, it's very tempting to just go, okay, let me go through my steps, right? I, I want to I read the text. I want to go to these three commentaries. I want to put some notes on a page and, and just teach that. And really, the the thing that you have to do is just immerse yourself in the entire context of the text. Mm -hmm. And I hear Cliff Sanders in my head at times where he says, you know, uh, read it 25 times before you pick up your pen. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so I I think I've made the mistake a number of times of of trying to go through a method of exposition for a few verses to to get me through that lesson that I need to go teach Mm -hmm. versus instead of just just calming down and going, all right, let's go back and let's really immerse ourselves in this text. Take your time understanding God's word. Uh, Go before, go after. Make sure you know where's place in the history um, so that when you get up there to teach, even if it's one lesson, you know, you don't allow just what, you know, a, a commentator said to, to be the basis of what God's trying to do through you. You know, I think Pastor Marty has done a real good job of that lately with 1 Corinthians 13. How he kind of says, this is not really a wedding passage. Yep. And he, the first week, he takes us through chapter 11, chapter 12, and says, let me show you the context of what Paul is writing this. It's, the con- it's in the context of a church that's not functioning very well. Yep. And I thought he did a nice job of that, of exactly mm-hmm. what you guys and what, Cole, what you were talking about. Of what? Why is First Corinthians here or thirteen here? It's because the church is having a hard time living together, and they're mm-hmm. doing a lot of really silly things. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of that is they've they've lost the thing that matters mm-hmm. most. And so it's more a sermon series about body life, right. Than it is about a husband and wife living together in in peace, although sure. that's applicable. But. Uh, you know, I read that to my wife every day just to make sure that she's loving me the way she's supposed to. <laughs> I think Jenny appreciates it. But, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure she does. That's my dry sense of humor in case you people don't know me very well out there. So, um, okay, Cole, yeah. sorry well, to interject I, that, And if you say this, if you, if you say this to somebody who is teaching, one of the immediate responses is like, okay, so I've got to study the whole book of 1 Corinthians just to do this one-off that I've been mm-hmm. asked to do. And it's like, yeah, you, you do. And you have but, to basically read the whole Bible. Yeah, and you, and you have to understand First Corinthians in the framework of, of the whole Bible too. But that's the thing that I would say is there's two there's two really important concepts at work in your prep here, and the first one is the importance of studying the Bible when you're not preaching, and when you're not teaching, because you should be drawing in every sermon series you should be drawing from the well of your own devotional time, and if you're going to do that, it means your devotional time needs to be more than, it's certainly not less than, but it needs to be more than just reading and being like, that was a great inspiring verse, and then praying at the end. There, there's a place for Bible study in your devotional time. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, I don't think you can get down to less than just reading and communing with God, and if that's just a verse and you do no study, I think that's great. But there's got to be time in your schedule where you're studying the Bible, you're understanding the context of books, so that when you come in and you're, you're called to preach a book of the Bible um, and you get one sermon out of there, you have a base that you're building on for um, your understanding and all that. Mm-hmm. How do you guys incorporate that into your time where you're just studying? It's not necessarily for your series that you're teaching in, but it, could, mm-hmm. it, it likely will be for a future series that you teach in at some point. I like that because when I first started teaching in a church, uh, kind of reluctantly, it I didn't study any differently than I was before. I like the idea of immersion. That's mm-hmm. my style. That's my thing is you just immerse yourself into the passage. You immerse yourself into the history, the context, and all of that. And then you may do a lesson. You may not do a lesson. I mean, I was going to do that this week anyway. Right. I mean, to some, and I'm exaggerating slightly, but not very much. In other words, you, you get immersed in the Scripture, whether you're going to teach it or not. And I like that because then what I usually go into a lesson with is, what does this passage want to say? And what does this lesson want to be? And sometimes, you know, my wife will ask me, what are, what are we doing in First Corinthians this week? I'll go, I'm not sure what this lesson wants to be yet. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that sounds a little mystical, but really it's like, I'm just not, 
I haven't done enough reading and studying and thinking and immersing myself in it. And the lesson will emerge from that. Yeah. I'd rather it emerge from that than emerge from what does Terry want to talk about this week. I think the bigger danger is because the question itself assumes you know what the true intent of the, the passage is, mm-hmm. right? Or the, the, the point, you know. I think the bigger danger, especially as you start out teaching, is you start teaching on something that passage does not want to be. Right. Uh, and that's and that's where, you know, for me, you know, I came out of the business world, and if I got up there and I presented something in the business world that was just, you know, kind of partially true, I got mm-hmm. recommended for that. I mean, that was, that was mm-hmm. well done, Blake. You know, right. you got up there and sold something. Uh, but but I know I had a lot of pressure on me. I, I put a lot of pressure on myself whenever I first started teaching, going, whatever I teach has got to be true. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think just just making sure simply you know what truth actually is, you can then determine what kind of lesson it needs to be from there. But step number one is make sure you actually know what the truth of this passage and is. And jumping on that, Blake, good point yeah. is... I think there's a sense in which you have to submit yourself to the text. I know exactly what you're talking about. You can get up in front of a group of people and say, I want you people to be more patient, or I want you to be more moral, and I can, through force of personality and marshalling the arguments and all of that, convince you to do that, and I can marshal the scripture. But there's a sense in which, and Lance, I think you do this really well, as you approach the lesson and you go... I'm willing to go with this lesson mm-hmm. where, where God wants to take me. You submit yourself to the text. Yeah, it's uh, I, one of the things I've said that's been misunderstood before, but just to clarify. Just once? Just, uh, it's only happened, well, maybe twice. Is I will say to people, the Bible is not an instruction manual. And, and I put the word merely in there now. It's not merely an instruction manual. It is a redemption story. And even that helps us out. If I'm going to approach the Bible as a manual for a bunch of Mm how-tos, then I'm a moralist. Yeah. But if I approach it like you're saying, Terry, that everything ties together in a web, uh, that's how I want to approach it just to show people that we are not. If you want to get good moral lessons, you can get those anywhere. You can sleep late on Sunday or go play golf. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to tell you how to live a better life. I'm here to tell you that a rescuer has come, and you just see this all. I mean, the Exodus story is basically an illustration of what's going to happen at the cross at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. It's, it's, It's a real thing that happened to real people in real time, but God wasn't finished with that story. That story carries on through Christ. Noah mm-hmm. carries on, mm-hmm. and I'm going back to Cole. We're putting Jesus in everything here. Yeah, there's a there's a really little a really excellent little book I read a few years ago called The Homiletical Plot by a guy named Lowry. Mm-hmm. It's really thin. It's maybe a hundred pages, maybe. But he has a J curve philosophy that what you do is you go in. And you get people down into slavery in your sermon. You're you're getting them to a place where they're going, who will rescue us? Mm-hmm. And then you bring it up through the gospel principles. You bring them to a point of, I've got to have resolution. And then yeah. you bring them to resolution, but you do it through the lens of the gospel. Uh-huh. And it's just an interesting little book that I, I just, mm-hmm. when you were talking about those three analogies, I just kept thinking of this book that he says that's a basic general principle is... Go in and kind of get people uneasy. He says you first need to disrupt their equilibrium. You need to let them know they're not here just to hear another lesson. You've got to shake them up just a little bit Mm -hmm. and then show them how, even in the Old Testament story, the gospel is the resolution to this. Right. And that's a little hard to do with every lesson, but it's an interesting principle. Yeah. I think there's a book called The Shape of Preaching. And Mm -hmm. in that book, they call that the Lowry Loop. And they identify that as one of the shapes that a sermon can take. And I think... Abiding by those shapes is really important. Um, understanding that your sermon isn't just a string of connected thoughts. It's not just a syllogism of, of arguments that you're making, but it actually has a narrative and an emotional shape to it. Um, I want to come back to that when we get to illustrations, but you know, none of this happens if you don't have a pretty thorough understanding of the big themes of the Bible. Right. So back to our prep discussion for a minute. I think one of the things that's really helpful is to be reading a commentary on a book that you're not teaching at any given time. And a good way to do this is is to just keep up with some of the series that are being written. And when a new book comes out in the series, mm-hmm. just read that book 
with your Bible study, no matter what it's about. So I, Craig Keener just released a new commentary on Galatians last year. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. It's a big definitive commentary on Galatians. I'm not teaching Galatians. Have we done our Galatians book overview yet? I don't think, I don't think so. we have. I'm saving this for that one, but I don't want to teach Galatians uh, anytime soon because I still haven't recovered from hating the book of Galatians in seminary uh, <laughs> because of all the new perspective on Paul arguments oh, yeah. and all that. Um, but and, and that you trend toward legalism. I mean, and, and then I'm a legalist. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, books like that where I'm still wrestling with questions in the text. Um, obviously, not about the inspiration, but how would I preach this text? Well, I'm going to go read Keener when I'm not preaching it so that I can build that warehouse of things to go to and arguments I've had with other people and the text and the wrestling that I've done when I get to preach it. So I'm reading that, taking notes, or the Brazos series that's being written right now is a great way to do that. Uh, the First and Second Chronicles volume just came out, so you get that. You read First and Second Chronicles along with that. Um, what do you guys have anything like that going or any recommendations for people that want to learn about big themes or books when they're not teaching? How would you go about doing that? A couple of thoughts here. One, and this isn't useful to everybody, but Chris Vlachos did a great little study on the Greek text of James. I have no mm-hmm. intention to preach or teach about James anytime in the near future, but I'm rereading James as I reread that just for my personal right. study. Blake and I are doing a book together that I know that we've just been discussing, uh, Shriner's book, mm. uh, which is kind of a biblical theology. It's you know it's just a little bit different, but I think we just finished the first uh, chapter we're going to do in that and uh, the King and His Beauty. Yeah, it's a, it's a large book and it's a biblical theology, but you know we won't do the whole book. But that was fun to do together and talk about it. Uh, one of the books you re- recommended was Peter Lightheart's Theopolitan Vision, mm-hmm. which is uh, just a book. It, it doesn't go with a book of the Bible. It's an ecclesiology. What is the yeah. church? And uh, Lance and I were, have talked about that some. And Is that the kind of thing you're thinking about? Is you, it, We're not teaching it. Yeah. We're just taking that opportunity to get into it. I was thinking there may be people listening to that are, you know, just average lay people, Sunday school teachers and, and, uh, I think you've recommended this before, Terry. You know, you may not have a lot of time. You may not have the budget, but the Bible knowledge commentary is a is a good overview if you're reading through a book. I've got a seminary prof, too, back in the day named Tom Thomas Constable. I think he's retired now, but he was a Bible, ex professor, Bible exposition professor, and so he taught every book of the Bible just in different class segments. But his, his our textbook was his notes, which was about a ream of paper every semester. But those notes are now online, and he updates them because he's he's constantly reforming. Mm. He's he, if he hears a new view or reads a new commentary, it's well footnoted. And we had somebody on staff the other day asking about an issue in scripture, and I said, just go to this guy's website because not because he's going to tell you what to think, but because he does a good job in layman's terms of just describing the views and. That kind of thing, and it's real easy for a layman. It's free. Um, mm-hmm. Could I give out the website? Are we okay to do that, or put it on sure. the? Yeah, we can it, link to it. Yeah, it's called SonicLight.com, and on it is Constable's Notes. And it's I'm not saying I'm not recommending. He's not a guy that's going to say here's what you should think. He's a guy that says I've done a lot of homework, and here's different views. So for the average person out there that maybe can't doesn't want to read a whole commentary, I find it helpful. Mm-hmm. And he's, he footnotes it well, and then you, if you want to read those guys' articles or things, you can find that on the internet. But yeah, that's what that's what my wife Jenny does when she studies her scripture. She's not a teacher, but she likes to know when she's reading Ezekiel, what's going on here, who's right. he talking to, what's going on, and she'll go to websites like that or the Bible Knowledge Commentary, mm-hmm. and it informs her thinking and helps her to better understand and therefore better apply. Ezekiel and Isaiah to her own life. Right. I think my biggest temptation, though, has been because I, I don't have time during my work day to prep Bible lessons. I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. got a much more operational, administrative job here at the church, so my time here is doing operational activities. And so my time for prepping lessons that I do each week is, is after hours. And I know it's been very tempting at times to go, okay, I'm going to dive into this text that I'm teaching on only for the next month. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to battle myself against that, saying, no, you've got to have your own time with God uh, in your own Bible reading, you know, going through your own, your own right. research. 
that is completely apart from this, right? It has to be completely apart. And I think for the average lay person who's teaching Sunday school class, right, it, I know it has to be tempting to go, you've had a very busy day, family, work, etc. I'm going to spend my time only absorbing this, this, this passage of text uh, for the next time. And I think just keeping that rhythm of your own personal Bible reading uh, on top of whatever you are teaching just mm-hmm. is, is a discipline that we all have to have. Right. And, and one thing I thought you might be alluding to in that question early on, too, is just the discipline of reading through the Bible every year, yeah. which doesn't take very long at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read through every year using different plans, and I like to mix it up where I'm reading a little Old and a little New Testament each day. But in doing that, I also go in and I think, you know what, if I get nothing out of today, I'm okay. I'm just going to read. And I might not get anything out of this, but I've got some colored pens and that kind of thing. And I mark things up and I've got a Bible right next to me that I've used for the last three or four years. And what's really interesting about this is that when I go through the next year, I say, wow, I didn't see that this time. Or Mm -hmm. this year I'm seeing something I've never even seen before. But overall, what it does, too, is it gives you a good perspective of the person of God, of the of the of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Of, of who God is and how he functions and who we are and how we function, those things are pretty consistent throughout the scripture. And so like yeah. you're saying, you might be you might be teaching a lesson and a verse or passage pops in your mind and you say, well, this applies here. So you, you recite that, but it's only because you've been reading through year by year by year the, the entire Bible. I think it averages out to four chapters a day. If you're yeah. an average reader, it's probably 20 minutes or less. Mm-hmm. And if you just go in there and say, listen, I'm not going to try to get some great theological knowledge today. I just want to read mm-hmm. and just read and mark it up occasionally. Over time, it's like an oak tree. Mm-hmm. You do that for 10, 15, 20 years, you're a different person and you're a better teacher mm-hmm. than you were when you started out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's pivot and talk illustrations. I think this is the part that people probably talk the most about in sermon and teaching prep. Um, and they can certainly make or break a sermon or a lesson, but what makes a good illustration versus a bad illustration? I wanted to convince my wife to have more kids just for the sermon illustration opportunities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that does seem to be the trend. There's so many similarities between raising children and the message of the Bible, but I do think we have to be a little careful about that. The other thing you have to be careful of, you've mentioned before, Cole, and I agree, is a killer illustration that becomes the heart of the lesson. Yeah, anytime you start a sermon with an illustration and then you just, or a story that you want to tell and then you add scripture around it, this is a temptation when you get asked to do a one-off sermon. And, and the best and worst thing is when you, you get invited to preach somewhere and you say, okay, what do you want me to preach on? Say anything you want. Mm-hmm. That is the worst. Yes. Because not only in that moment does your brain decide that you can't remember anything you've ever learned <laughs> or taught on, but then secondly, you're tempted to derive sermons in the wrong way. It's almost better if somebody gives you a text and tells you to preach on that text because at least you have a starting point. But... A lot of times what you'll do is if you're asked to preach a lesson, you have this great story you want to tell. It's either really funny or powerful or you heard somebody like Fred Craddock, you know, tell it and you want to do that. Uh, And then you decide, what could I possibly talk about that would go with this illustration? That's almost always a a recipe for a bad illustration. Even if it is impactful, it's probably not going to be a good illustration. I've made a pact with myself because I get asked to substitute teach a lot. You know, if Mm -hmm. Lance is out or, you know, just I get asked to substitute teach a lot that if they all, and almost everyone always says, well, teach whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I just made a pact with myself that when I get told that, I'm going to teach whatever I am reading in the Bible, in my own personal Bible study that day. Okay. It's just, I'm going to choose that text to keep myself from going and telling the same story I really want to tell Good about myself idea. or whatever yeah. illustration yeah. I've heard just to keep myself honest. One of the, yeah. one of the benefits of reading through Scripture on a daily basis is that's where you get a lot of your sermon or series ideas the more mm-hmm. you do it, and that way you start with the text. Definitely. I was thinking of illustrations. See, there's, I, I see two main purposes of illustrations. One, obviously, is to clarify a difficult-to-understand principle. The other sometimes is just to let people breathe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. got to fit, but I, whenever I'm preparing a lesson and I'm kind of giving it my final overview on Sunday morning, one of the questions I ask is, and teaching Sunday school is different because you've got discussion in there too, right. but am I breaking this up or is this a college lecture to where I'm not 
you know, sometimes in illustration, it always needs to tie into something that's going on in the text. But it doesn't have to be the best illustration in the world. Sometimes you just, when, when people aren't listening, you say, let me tell you a story. Uh-huh. And everyone perks back up. And they're re-engaged. And it helps people what I call breathe. And it just helps them exhale because they're inhaling all this information. And I, I don't know about you, but my mind, when I'm listening to a sermon or lesson, maybe it's just me, my mind wanders a lot. Mm-hmm. And I catch myself daydreaming. But when I hear the teacher say, you know, it was just like the other day. Or let me tell you a story. Or have you ever heard of a ribbon or whatever that thing is you described all ago, Terry? You know, you, you, uh-huh. then we're we're grabbing everyone's attention back, and that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, I tell I, I tell young guys all the time, you should think about the seven minute rule in your preaching when it comes to illustrations. Uh, I think this is originally a Disney concept. If you watch the old animated Disney movies, you'll realize they don't stay in the same sequence for more than about seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's probably less now because mm-hmm. I think attention spans for for teaching have gone down. But you should change your intonation, your mm-hmm. speed, your intensity. You should move from teaching to illustration. You should move from illustration to application. And when you get done prepping, what you should do is you should go through your outline or your manuscript and you should look and see, is there any part of it where you're doing the same thing for more than about seven minutes? Mm. In which case, that's a moment where you need to add something, delete something, change something, change your level emotionally, rhetorically, uh, the content of what you're saying about every seven minutes Mm -hmm. to continue to engage people's attention spans in your preaching. That's a good that's a good thought. I, I think maybe in one point of doing that is if you have pages of notes, you mm-hmm. might even just look on a page and say, is there if you're teaching Sunday school, an illustration might not be an illustration, it might just be discussed. Let's discuss, let's let's get people thinking on a different level. But mm-hmm. on every page is there something Right. You think you say that if you watch TV today, I think it's four seconds is about the time that they change frames in yeah. scenes. Watching football last night, you know, if you really pay attention, notice how many times they change the camera angle, even before a play begins. What people are used to is constant change. Yeah. So now we're they're coming to church on Sunday, and we're saying, we're just going to monologue for an hour. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work with right. their attention spans. Yeah. So yeah. There's, a, there's a good, sometimes illustrations are just to change, like I said, change the scene. Yeah. The other thing I, I like I've seen you guys do well on illustrations is is you guys aren't afraid to cover difficult topics in the Bible, which I think is a great principle as well. You never want to pass over the difficult topics in the Bible, but you can use the illustrations to bring in a little bit of comedic relief whenever you mm-hmm. are really getting into something that is just tough to get through. Mm-hmm. And I don't think illustrations always need to be funny by, by, by right. any means. We, we screw up a lot of illustrations because we always try to have humor when it's not necessary. But I think a lot of times in those really tough passages of the Bible, a little bit of relief um, is really, really helpful. I think Lance does a great job of this in funerals, is just uh, how, just what a difficult, um, you know, time the families are having. Uh, But he integrates just a little bit of relief in there throughout Mm -hmm. the message that just really, I think, helps everyone in the room um, focus on the right things. Yeah, that summarizes illustrations broadly, I think, is you should be painting in a lot, in a big color palette, mm-hmm. but it should also be appropriate to what you're doing. So, you know, the, the thing about Lance is he he's able to inject humor, relief into a funeral service, but that's because that's who Lance is mm-hmm. all the time. I One of the things that's really tempting is to try to illustrate like somebody else or to do something because you think you should when the key to good illustrations is illustrating things in the way that you would illustrate them if you weren't preaching. So if you're not the guy who is really gregarious and funny, don't try to be that guy in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Now, a little humor is great no matter who you are, but when, when you listen to young people preach and you hear them do things that you're like, something's off in that, or that just didn't land... Usually it's really helpful to sit down, and if you don't know them very well, just listen to them talk to you for 20 minutes Mm. and figure out how do they like to explain things in real life. You should do that in the pulpit. You should be in your wheelhouse, and and you can expand that over time, but be in your wheelhouse in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't try to do stuff you would never try and pull off 
in regular conversation when you're in the pulpit. Well, yeah, and I'll give you a negative example of this. Is, uh, people are used to my teaching being pretty serious. Mm-hmm. But I have kind of a playful mind and I like to joke, but it doesn't come across very well because that's not what they're used to. In other words, I yeah. couldn't do what Lance does. Yeah. As much as I would like to do it, because I like that and I think you're really effective, just a little dry humor here and there just goes right over people's heads because they're not expecting that from me. That's right. not my persona in mm-hmm. front of them. And so you, you do have to be a little bit true to yourself mm-hmm. and not try to be somebody else as much as you might want to and you admire that. It's like, well, I, I really can't get away with that. Yeah. And you find things that you can get away with that other people That's right. can't because right. you have a relationship, because you have mm-hmm. a persona that people pick up on in the pulpit. So to close or to give some parting advice, what's, what's the best advice you've been given or the best advice you give to a young person about teaching and, and sermon preparation? Okay, I'm going to give you one that's going to sound really off the wall, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, obviously the immersion and all of that kind of thing. But as you sit down to make your notes and you sit down to outline, more people than not, I would recommend use a notebook that doesn't have lines. Why do you say that? That's I know that sounds not very profound. If I'm sitting down to a lined notebook... Uh, it makes me want to be linear hmm. in writing things down. And there are times to be linear. I take notes in a book like that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But every now and then, sit down with a blank piece of paper or the current fad, the dot uh, paper, you know, that are made of dots or whatever. And so you don't have rigid lines and things go upward from left to right. And you can draw a circle around if you want to. And, you know, there are a lot of different techniques, but I know this sounds trivial, but just try outlining things on a blank piece of paper and not a lined piece of paper and see if it doesn't change your paradigm a little bit. Mm -hmm. For me, I got some advice once from this guy I know named Terry Fakes, and he, he, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably gone from my evolution of learning to teach and still obviously learning a whole lot, but I learned how to teach with a method. And then I remember I, I, I sent a lesson to him, and he goes, you were a bit stiff. He goes, I want you to try something. He goes, immerse yourself so much in the text. And he goes, when you get up to teach, have, an, have, have like a, a post-it note with, mm-hmm. with three bullets on it. Three bullets only, and teach from that. And, and that scared me to death, but what it got me doing is going, you know what? I have been relying upon my method more mm-hmm. than I have been relying upon actually getting into the Scripture and fully absorbing it. And whenever you know you're going to get up there with three, three post-it notes, you're tempted to either memorize everything the entire time or just make sure you know it inside and out where mm-hmm. you get up there and just be led mm-hmm. and, uh, and give a very authentic uh, lesson. And you don't want to do that whenever you're doing your first sermon in front of a couple thousand people. But for the groups that know you well and love you and you've got your Sunday school class or your men's groups, whatever it may be, that's a great place to go try that and just to, to make sure you're not being so rigid uh, in, in how you're approaching your lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I, I, I was trying to think through this as y'all were talking because I've thought about 15 different things, but that's exactly my point that I'm going to make is, now that I say it, is make sure that people can remember on Monday what you were trying to say on yeah. Sunday. Mm-hmm. and. Don't back up the dump truck and unload information Mm -hmm. on them. Mm -hmm. Make sure that everything is leading back. And then what's funny is I find myself like, I can think of yesterday I taught Sunday school. I didn't do this. I I, I think it went in a good direction, but what I always like to ask, you know, Cole, what you and I used to ask before we would teach is what's your central proposition? You know, I'm I'm about to go teach the guys over on Wednesday. I'd say, Cole, what's what's your idea? What's your central idea? And then tell me what text you're preaching on. And and at Dallas Seminary, that was our big deal. Is yeah. We would get done preaching a sermon in, in preaching class, and you knew you were in trouble when the professor would go around the class and say, what do you think his central idea was? And you get 15 different answers, and you're like, yeah. ah, didn't do my job. Yeah, mm-hmm. It might have been great expositionally, but the question is, are they going to remember on Monday what you taught them on Sunday? Right. Have you shaped it that way? And that is hard, hard yeah. work. And that's kind of, the, sometimes that's the last thing you come up with. Uh-huh. But one point, you know, what is it, uh, in City Slickers, who was the guy that said one yeah, thing? One, one thing. I don't think we yeah. ever knew what that one thing was, but one thing. Yeah. What is it? That, and that was something, that Lance, you taught me a lot whenever we started talking about teaching was, you know, concentrate on that one thing. And that was a bit of a freeing concept for me as, mm-hmm. as someone who's just doesn't have a lot of experience in this is, 
okay, I don't have to make this a 3.4.5 point, you know, mega information load. To, you know, get that point down, repeat it over and over again, use different illustrations, get it through to where they will remember it. Yeah, it, 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 it's kind of the idea of look at your lesson as a concentric circle mm-hmm. almost, which is great mm-hmm. for no lined paper is what's my central idea and how is this going? I don't know why I'm gesturing here, but how is this going to build out in different directions? And of course, always make that point. If the text has got to be saying that point, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's bullet, not buckshot, as Haddon Robinson would say. You give them buckshot, they're just going to walk away and they're just going to say, that was great. What was great about it? I don't know, but it was great. It's like, I don't want people saying that. I want people to say, you know what? I'm never for- going to forget that. And it may blossom five years from now, but they remember that point you made, and yeah. it comes to life. The yep. seed bears fruit later on. Yeah, the, the only things I would add to what we've said is don't be afraid to get coaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it seems funny when you talk about preaching and coaching and feedback, but it, it, you wouldn't do anything else with this magnitude without having people speak into it. And so find somebody who can give you good, honest feedback, even though it's going to hurt uh, especially in preaching because it's something really, it's it's an intimate thing to preach and to share yourself in that way. And then there there's ways that things get really strange and, and you feel like this is your calling. And so whenever you get into calling and somebody says, yeah, but that wasn't good. Well, are you not good now? Is your calling, you know, but you need somebody you have the relationship with that can give you honest feedback. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last thing I would say is figure out a way to either pray yourself or study or, or whatever to care about the point of the text. Mm-hmm. You hear so many sermons that people know what they should say. They know what they need to say, but you can tell they don't actually care about mm-hmm. what this is at a deep level. And uh, the best sermons are when the preacher has owned the text, they've thought about it, they've prayed through it, they care about what the message of the text is. And not just they care about something else in their sermon besides the point of the text, but care about the point of your text. And whatever you need to do to get there in sermon prep, I think is essential. One thing there, Cole, too, I think it's important that we run into as teachers a lot. We've been meditating on this text the whole week. We've been thinking about it, talking to our wives about it, our significant others about it. We get to Saturday night and we're like, I'm just so... It's not that you don't like the text, but you're worn out with it. Yeah. And you think to yourself, this is not going to be good tomorrow morning. But what I always tell myself is, everyone sitting there tomorrow morning, none of them have been thinking about this. This will all be fresh to them. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes renews my enthusiasm for a text in which I may be excited about it, but I've also been thinking about so much right? that it just is a little stilted in my mind. And so I remind myself, listen... It's going to be fresh bread for them tomorrow. Uh And trust in that. Right. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.